Welcome to the Forest FM podcast, episode 154. I'm Killian Vigna. And I'm Zoe Belil Springer. This week on the show, we're joined by Chris Moody, a teacher training specialist, presentation and facilitation skills coach, as well as a Redken artist and coach. And we'll be discussing a very interesting topic, helping those who educate to reach and impact more people. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, sit back, relax, and join us weekly for all your salon's business and marketing needs. Teaching is a skill and skills can be taught. Everybody has got something that they can teach to someone else. And to stand back and to say, I can't teach because I'm not an expert is a disservice to the people who might benefit from the knowledge that you have. And if we can pass on those one or two things to somebody else, help them live a better life, solve a problem, just get over a little obstacle in the road. If we can do that, then we should and we can. Just go in and help people. Let people see what you can do and how you can help them. Serve first. That was Chris Moody, who we actually met a few months back at our Forest AGM, and he did a guest talk about why you can't teach robots how to cut hair. So he was kind of going through the whole, like, the empathy that's in the industry, how it's a very hands-on industry. Basically, you need human interaction to get a lot of the treatments and services done. So it's that one role in the industry where you can't automate. So I think it's fair to say that, Chris, it, it was an emotional talk, it, it was very good. There was definitely a, a, cu- a few blurry eyes and the tears, but it was a phenomenal talk and we knew instantly we just had to get him on the show. And I'm, I'm personally excited about this because my role in Forest is creating the self-taught training content and this is what he does day in, day out. He's an educator. I think you, you actually have a bit more background about him there if you want to share it, Zoe. So Chris Moody has been teaching hairdressers for over 25 years and teaching trainers for over 10. He travels globally on behalf of brands developing their education skills and platforms. And he also has been partnering an online webinar based coaching program for platform artists. Uh, I guess it's needless to say his passion is helping to raise the status of the hair and beauty industry by helping those who educate how to uh, impact more people to become a facilitator at the end of the day. And uh, we'll be digging into what that really means further into our discussion with him uh, today. But yes, uh, no surprise as to why we chose this topic. So look, without further ado, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, hello, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. I mean, it was a pleasure to initially meet you and connect at the Forest Christmas Gathering. Yeah, it was a great pleasure to be there and super interesting for me as well to get behind the scenes and see how uh, teams and organizations like that work. It was a terrific event. Uh, so thank you again for inviting me to that one. It was lovely to see behind the curtain, as it were. Would that have been a new experience for you to ever have gone out to a company like us for anything like that? Yeah, not, not an entirely new experience, Killian, to be honest. No, I've given uh, presentations and speeches before. Um, I tend to avoid stand and deliver situations. My style is much more interactive. I like to ask questions. I like to do discussions and exercises and what have you. But I have spoken uh, to groups outside of our industry before, especially in my, uh, in my teaching role. I often work with uh, colleges and uh, FE institutions institutions or further education institutions as well that are not necessarily related directly to hairdressing. Spoken like a true facilitator, you'd prefer to be open creating an engaging scenario. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my, my philosophy is that if you can put it onto uh, if you can put it onto an audio file, onto a DVD or a CD, or you can upload it onto YouTube, then you may as well do that. There's no point in you being there in person. Um, so so you have to 
you have to deliver something that, uh, with all due respect, uh, a, a, a purely audio experience can't deliver. Of course, yeah. Even though sometimes uh, audio and video are great too, you know, just to connect yourself, you can't be everywhere at the same time, right? Absolutely not. No, and I, I was just mentioning before, you know, we do a weekly webinar, a coaching webinar thing, and that's uh, uh, certainly a branch that education is moving into now, kind of online webinar-based education. And, uh, and and that's fantastic. It's really powerful. It's very effective. We have some great feedback from it. But we also have a biannual meeting where we meet face-to-face with the people that are involved in this webinar and have what you might call personal interaction, because that just takes it to another level and adds another dimension to the education. We're in very similar worlds, Chris, because my whole role yeah. is to create online courses. <laughs> well, more self-taught than anything. But yeah, we're kind of in the, that similar universe there. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, when we're actually discussing this episode's angle, you were initially saying that you felt strongly about the industry's current teaching models and how they were broken, per se. Are they still broken? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I'll probably quantify that by saying I, I don't feel strongly that they're broken. I feel strongly that uh, they need to be enhanced and they need to be strengthened and they need to be done in a slightly different way. But I think that's not just this industry. I think it's the whole world of adult education. What I really specialize in is adult education. And I use a method called accelerated learning, which is a way of getting a, a great deal of information, contextual information across to people in a, in a shorter period of time. Adult education is very, very different to the type of education that we experienced at school. And unfortunately, what we tend to do is, is unless we're told otherwise, we tend to teach how we were taught. And we were taught at school. And uh, teaching at school is is great. You know, uh, schools get a bad rap, you know, people talking about, uh, I mean, there's been some great quotations where, where nothing nothing uh, debilitates learning like a school, nothing squashes creativity like a school. And, but, but, but I disagree. Schools do a fantastic job, but they do a very particular job to a very particular group of people at a very particular time in their lives. Now, when people leave school and they become adults, that job changes. And so their needs change and the way that we deliver education to them has to change. It's no good delivering education to a bunch of 25-year-old semi-professionals in the same way that that information was delivered to a bunch of 25-year-old teenagers. It's just a different job and, and requires a different delivery. When you mention schools, would you refer to schools as being like primary, high school, and then going into, uh, say, beauty school? Or is it just more so the beauty school section? Yeah, that's a great question. So primarily what we're talking, what I'm talking about when I refer to schools is mandatory education. So mandatory education, which is aimed at children or people under the age of 18, you know, it, it, it is mandatory. You don't you, you have no choice. You have to go. And it's very much subject focused. So we go to school to learn about maths, no one particular aspect of maths, but the whole thing. So it's subject led when we're adults. The education now becomes voluntary. We choose to go. And invariably, adults are driven into education because they have a problem that they need to fix. And the one thing that motivates adult, adults into education is that they have passed a threshold of pain. All of us on this podcast here will have a problem within our lives and that problem will build and build and build until such time as we pass a threshold of pain and that prompts us to take action. And that could be def- deciding that we want to update a skill or invest in some new technology or, uh, or, or, or I don't know, even just fix a broken tile on the roof. Adults don't act until they surpass a a threshold of pain and an adult education needs to be 
uh, solutions focused or specifically results focused. Uh, once an adult buys a result, then they'll buy the solution that gives them that result. And that's the essential difference between the two. I think what tends to happen is in, in FE, which is you're talking about further education and higher education, is that 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 data-driven subject-focused delivery still carries through as opposed to it being problem-solution related. You know how you mentioned the further education? The school system has been built in for years and years and years, generations. Um, that further education tends to be modelled on that as well. So how do we as educators or as academy builders or whatever it is don't fall into the trap of building a model based off previous education that we've had? Yeah, gosh, that's a huge question and a really important and valid question. The whole school system that we have now is based on an, on an industrialization. Basically, you know, it was built in order to prepare people for industry. We sat behind desks, we uh, produced a, a standard amount of work within a particular timetable and set breaks, uh, and it was very linear. And that's exactly what we pr we were prepared for as we went into uh, as we went into industry. But now that industry doesn't exist anymore. But education has been in existence for such a long time. It's taking a long time to change, but it will change. The other thing to remember about mandatory education is it's dealing with people that have no data whatsoever. So it's all well and good for people to go to college or corporate learning and say, oh, schools are, are no good. They've kind of squashed creativity. But we have the pleasure and the privilege of dealing with students that already know how to read, how to write, how to tell the time so that they can be in class on time. Schools don't have that, so they do have to input lots and lots of data. So how we change that is being able to recognize that once that data has been finished, once that data has been uploaded, if you like, into this person, then what that person now needs is not more data. What they need is a contextualization of that data. How can I apply that data in different contexts so that I can become a problem solving individual? It's, it's all well and good wanting to be creative and wanting to push boundaries, but I need a certain level of data, a certain level of base knowledge in order to be able to ask the next question that hasn't been asked. And I think what higher, higher and further education is trying to do now is work on that data and add more contextualization. The issue that they're up against is data is very easy to measure. I can, I can tell you that you have to learn the 12 times tables by rote and I can measure whether or not you've, you, you've achieved that. But if I then want to contextualize that, I can't measure all of the problems that you're likely to come across and, the, and, and you've used this data to solve those problems. It becomes very hard to measure. And, and, and the essential problem that we've got with mandatory education and even any kind of paid or funded education is that it has to be accountable. Somebody pays for it and therefore they want a level of accountability. How do I measure it? But education is very difficult to measure or certainly quality of education is very difficult to measure. Going back to school, it's kind of like getting that mandatory foundation. But when you're talking about like on the job learning, so it's like, what do I need to know now to get past that pain point? Before I would have always had the attitude of school was just one big memory test. Like from the age of 13 to 15, I'd study 11 subjects and all the final exams were basically how well could I remember? Like I was terrible at it. And then even between the age of 16 to 18, I had eight subjects. And again, it was just how well could yeah. you remember? But it's... Yeah. It's interesting how it changes where most people will say, I didn't like school, I hate school. You go to college, it's a bit more interesting. But I actually kind of find 
probably being in the working world, I've had more of an interest in learning because it's taken me to on the job. It's what do I need to know now to get past this hurdle or what you've just said about contextualizing that data. So um, if anything, I kind of think going into adult education is more appealing than when you were in school. I, I would agree in some part to that, certainly because uh, uh, it, it, it has to it a level of autonomy. I mean, there are three principles to motivation. There's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And uh, adult education, if it's delivered well, it has a sense of autonomy. It's self-directed. It involves self-discovery. It has a certain amount of mastery because you're given feedback all the time. You can see progress. You can see yourself getting better at coding or cutting hair or your pod, the quality of your podcast getting better and better. And ultimately, you can see a sense of purpose because you see a bigger world outside of just your classroom. So I think adult education definitely has that advantage. And I think, but, but I just feel what we mustn't discount is the fact that we are only able to learn as adults because of the information we memorized as children. You can only self-learn if you were taught how to read. Does that make sense? I wish my 16-year-old self had a more appreciation for what you just said there. <laughs> that's definitely something I'll be telling my kids down the line. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, I, I work with adult educators all the time, corporate educators, and they do nothing but badmouth the school system, as I once did. But I think as you get deeper into education, you recognize that you need to input a certain amount of data. You need to, to just spoon feed a certain amount before you can ask the question. There's no point asking questions of people who have no data. Yeah. People don't know what they don't know. So if you want to find out what is behind a black hole, a question that has never been asked before, you first have to have a really good foundation knowledge of astrophysics. Does that make sense? You can't be creative unless you've gone through that kind of data barrier, really. Absolutely. So when it comes to adult education, then, we're sure to hear about, well, in any sort of education, really, we're sure to hear about learning styles. What would be the main learning styles and how do you relate that to teaching? That, again, is a huge uh, subject to look at, and it depends who you look at, really. I mean, when it talks learning styles. For years and years, we used to talk about these three styles, which were visual, audio, and kinesthetic. And then uh, another one came up, and now there's, there's considered to be these four learning styles, which is visual, audio, kinesthetic, and then read-write. Um, I personally think reading and writing is a mixture of kinesthetic and visual learning but there you are and then David uh, Kolb I don't know if you if you heard of a guy called David Kolb he came up with another four learning styles which was all about uh, feeling thinking watching and doing and how all they cross over and then of course you've got um You've got uh, Dirk and Walden Weller, who did some amazing studies back in the 80s, and they talked about activists, theorists, reflectors, and pragmatists. And, uh, and so when you talk about these four learning styles, just take your pick. There are lots of four learning styles, but, but they all revolve around one premise, and that is that, that all of us learn in many different ways, and we all use all of these different modalities in some form or, or another but we'll tend to have a preference to move towards one or the other. So I think whether you look at this VAKR or whether you look at David Kolb or whether you look at, uh, at, the, at Dirk and Waldo and, um, and Weller, I think it is, whether you look at whichever one you look at, you'll see that people have a different way of doing things. They want to jump in and get started. 
they want to step back and kind of measure it and read the instructions and, and make a plan. Uh, they want to think about it for a while, see how it feels, consider the consequences. Uh, they want to see a real world application to it. And I think as an educator, what you have to recognize is that the way that you see and process and understand information is not the way that the rest of your class will do it. So you have to put yourself always in the shoes of your learner and say, how is this person seeing this information? How are they hearing it, processing it, and how are they going to apply it? And I have to, I have to adjust my style and my delivery to suit them. Ultimately, it boils down to one thing. It's not about me. It's about you. So do you try and blend as many of those learning styles as possible? Or do you, have you found from, I mean, like you're doing this quite a while at this stage, have you found that one style uh, works better than the other? And this is going to be controversial, but do you believe in the four learning styles? Do you believe that I'm solely a visual learner, so he's solely a kinesthetic learner? Like, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. And uh, I'm going to give you the short answer is I do believe in these four learning styles, but I do not believe that anybody has one particular overwhelming style and that all you do is learn things by looking or all you do is learn things by doing or learn things by listening. I do not believe that at all. We have a multi-sensory perception of the world around us and we process it using all of these modalities and all of these styles. We may have a preference, you know, and you will see people, you, you'll give somebody an instruction and they'll say hang on so let me just be clear what you want me to do is and they'll talk through it or they'll say hang on a second so uh, what you want me to do is I'm going to put this here and then I'm, this is going to go over there and then you want me to and, and they'll actually act it out so you'll see what people's preferences are but if you just go down one route you're only going to give them just you're not going to give them a hundred percent of the message so I do believe in those learning styles I don't believe that any one person uh, uh, is exclusively assigned to one although we do have preferences. And in my training, in, in the education that I deliver, I'm constantly trying to show people things, have them do things, discuss things, think about things, question things. So I'm constantly putting state changes into my training, which is changing their physical, their mental, and even their emotional state all the time. Because the more we can move them through these three states, the more of their uh, neural connections are firing up, the more, the more connected they are, the more present they are in the learning. So yeah, constantly changing things around. And would you say that that there that you've just described is probably the key difference between a teacher and a facilitator? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, one of my teachers has a great quote. He says, uh, uh, you know, the difference between a trainer and a facilitator is that a facilitator can adapt to any situation in the room at any time. Uh, so people often say, they'll say, what's the difference between teaching, coaching, facilitating, training? Well, they're all under the umbrella of teaching. They all teach in some way, shape or form. But when we're in, when, when we're talking about training, we tend to be uh, objective led. We have an objective in mind. For instance, you may be teaching teaching somebody something in your organization about computers and you have a particular objective that you need to get them to within a particular time frame. So you're on this kind of linear path and you have to move there. Where facilitation is more about figuring out what's the challenge, what's the problem, what's your pain point, what result are you looking for and what solution can I provide to bring this pain point and this result together. So facilitation is more the assistance of progress as opposed to delivering a methodology. So you were just saying there, like with the pain point and trying and, and coming up with a solution, there's this one thing that 
happens quite often in coaching. It happens quite often um, in the, the mandatory school systems with especially math. I'm thinking math where it's like you are given a problem and you've no prior knowledge to it. And it's just to try to get you to thinking about how you'd solve it. And you're likely to fail the first shot. And then you have to just try again and again and again. And then obviously the person who's supporting you can guide you in the right direction. But do you believe that that actually works for anyone with any learning style? To a certain extent, I do believe it. And I think it's something that we call experiential learning, learning through experience and making mistakes. And mistakes are really essential to learning, but it depends how we label them. You know, some people call them mistakes. Some people call them discoveries. If you look at it, there's actually no difference between a mistake and a discovery. It's just how you label it. Mistakes tend to be very crippling. Discoveries tend to be very empowering. Uh, what really happens is is having the ability to have someone there, and you mentioned coaching, and really the, the big difference between coaching and training is that training is all about telling, coaching is all about asking. So if you, you have an outcome, a result, and it may be an unexpected result, the first thing to do is to, dis, is to, is to not add a value to that result. Like we, we, we live in a, in, a, in a society now that adds value to things. It's either right, wrong, good or bad. In an educational environment, there is no right, wrong, good or bad. You have a goal in mind, an outcome in mind, and every result takes you closer to that goal or moves you further away. If it moves you further away, then you need to figure out what needs to change. If it moves you closer, then you need to figure out how you can keep going down the same path and repeat. So once you've made that mistake, it's up to the coach, the teacher, the trainer to then say, okay, so what happened? What worked? What didn't work? What did you learn? And what are you going to do next? And I think if you can ask a series of questions like that to get people thinking about things, then they can start to make their own progress. The only time that that might not work is if there is, like I said earlier on, if there's a complete lack of data. It's no good me sitting you down in front of a Korean text and saying, OK, so what do you think that says? You know, because you, if you have no data to work on at all, you have to assess what level, what data have you got to build on. But it's rather than just adding data all the time, add some data and then what can you do to build on that? Okay, so now what can you do with that information? Use it, try something that you haven't tried before and let's see what happened. So learning through mistakes, or as I like to say, learning through self-discovery is a really powerful uh, way of learning. What, one thing that I always say to my learners, uh, and I, I tell the people that I teach this, I teach teachers and I tell them that information discovered is more powerful than information given. It's yours. You own it. No one gave it to you. You worked for it. You found it and it belongs to you. And therefore, no one can take it away from it. You found it in your way, using your style, and you made your sense of it. So now you own it. So, yeah, if you can discover it, it's much more empowering and it'll last a lot longer, too. So, Chris, you've talked about kind of discovering and gathering data and then adding to it to build onto your knowledge or what you've learned. Um, is this similar to repetition repetition to build memory because we all know that uh was it that statement it takes 10,000 hours to put to master a skill uh, when you're talking about kind of like gathering your data and building it is that almost repeating the same tasks over and over what's it einstein's insanity thing repeating the same things over and over and expecting different results or do you like to chop and change your materials quite regularly 
Well, you, you know, that's a really interesting. We talk about this all the time. That gets bandied about so much. It drives me nuts, as I'm sure it does <laughs> Anders Ericsson. And uh, uh, Anders Ericsson must, must uh, both uh, in equal measure love and loathe Malcolm Gladwell because the 10,000 Hours, as you may or may not know, was made very popular by Malcolm Gladwell in a book he called Outliers. And it was based on a study that uh, Anders Ericsson did, oh gosh, between the 70s and the 90s, actually. And uh, like a lot of these self-help books, like I I have to, I'll I'll make a a confession here. I used to be a self-help book junkie at one time. And, uh, but but as I started to look behind what what was living behind the self-help books and started to look at the science and the study behind it, I realized that in some cases, although they can be very helpful, they can also be equally misguided because um, like the 10,000 hour rule, it's taken out of context and, and it's turned into a soundbite that, that really isn't very helpful at all. Um, uh, for those listeners that don't entirely know, uh, Anders Ericsson did this study. It took him a long time, did it with three other people, and it was basically a bunch of violin students at a conservatoire in Berlin. And uh, he was trying to figure out what made them better than every other um, musician in, uh, in Germany. And he just picked an arbitrary figure. When, uh, he averaged out that when they were 20 years old, by the time they were 20, they'd done around 10,000 hours. Now, it could have said by the time they were 18 or by the time they were 21, but that wasn't a nice round figure like 10,000. 10,000 is a really nice round figure. It's lovely. But it was an arbitrary figure and it was an average estimate. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and this got picked up that in order to be a master at something, in order to perfect something, you have to practice for uh, five days a week, 20 hours a day, 10, 10, uh, you know, for 10 years, 10,000 hours. And that makes you what you are. But that's not what Anders Ericsson said at all. What, what he just used it as a measure that on average, that's what these people have done. But what they had done, and this is the key, they'd not just practiced. They'd done something that Anders and his team called deliberate and prolonged practice. And that is the kind of practice that you do under tutelage. So, so they had a teacher with them who was constantly pushing them past their comfort zone, pushing them through their pain barrier and correcting their practice. Because if I practice something for 10,000 hours and I'm not practicing well, then I'm just going to be a master of bad habits. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the other thing wrapped up with that, and, uh, Anders Ericsson also noticed that these kids were quite wealthy so that they could afford violins. Uh, one of their parents wasn't working so they could afford to take them to private tutors all the time. So it wasn't just 10,000 hours. It was also opportunity and a certain amount of latent talent but uh, the self-help books don't like that because they like to think they like to convince you that you're in control of everything. But if 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 you're born in the upper class suburbs of Berlin, it's likely that you might get a violin and go to a conservatoire. But if you're born down in the slums of East LA, it's less likely that you're going to have access to a classical conservatoire or a violin. Does that you know? So, but but. That's out of our control and we hate things being out of our control. We like to think we're in control of everything. So um, what they're going on about there, where, where there, there is a book, I think you guys mentioned it, and, and it's a, a book called Making It Stick. And it's a really, quite a, it's a fantastic book. It's, it's brilliant. If you haven't read it, I would recommend you go out there and read it. It's called Make It Stick. I've started recommending it to everyone. It's actually addictive, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. It is. And, and they say there that, that just constant memory, con- uh, constant repetition will not lead to memory. Well, I, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that because uh, it, but, well, I think what they're trying to say is that it doesn't lead to useful memory. 
or, or learning by rote and simply memorizing a packet of data. You may be able to memorize it, you may be able to recite it, but perhaps you can't use it. Like, for instance, I could try an experiment with you now. I'm, I'm pretty sure that either of you will know your cell phone, your mobile number off by heart. Am I right? Yeah. You could tell me your mobile number right now. You could reel it off, 11 characters, yes? Could do, but I probably won't right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I asked you now to name the sixth digit, what is it? Ooh, that, that'll take me two seconds, yeah. I got it now, but yeah. Seven, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, 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 you've memorized your phone number, but if I asked you to tell me the sixth digit, you can't tell me what it is. So what that means is that is, is just simply repeating some information over and over again will help you memorize it but it won't help you use it, and we come back to this word again, contextually. It won't help you solve problems. That's actually a brilliant example you gave with the phone because you recite your phone number off so often, but have you ever had someone recite your phone number back to you and you not recognize it? Where you're like, oh, eight, five, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but does someone else goes, oh, eight, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you go, no, 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 that's not it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny thing about memory because you think you you think you've remembered eleven numbers with your mobile number, but you haven't. You've actually only remembered four or five numbers. You've remembered one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's just four things. It's the sequence. You remember the sequence, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's very difficult for you to remember more than five five to seven things in your working memory. That's about that's about what you can get. So again, you can go back to school and you can memorize the entire works of Nietzsche. And and you might sound very intellectual when somebody says, Oh, this is a problem and, and you quote Nietzsche to your friends and everybody thinks, God, he must be fantastic. The question is, do you understand what Nietzsche actually wrote? Do you understand what it means and can you apply it to solve the complexities of your own life? So there's a difference between memorizing and understanding and that's what this book is all about. That was actually, it, that literally just popped into my head when you said that. Goodwill hunting is, it starts off with that foundation, doesn't it? Where the guy can memorize, the janitor can memorize absolutely everything. But the minute he becomes challenged on it, he doesn't understand the context behind what he's reciting. And it goes back to that. It's about contextualization. And, and, and again, that goes back. The 21st century is not about data. We are literally drowning in data. We have, we have more data in our back pocket than we've had uh, you know, for the whole of history of mankind. The last thing that we need is more data. What we need is contextualization of that data. That's how we'll move forward. So let's say you've become a master at your craft and you've gone to further education, you've, you've done whatever you're doing for years and years, maybe hit that 10,000 hours, right? Um, does that automatically qualify you as someone who could become a teacher? Or is there, like, if I take the example of yoga, to become a teacher, you actually have to do those teacher trainings and all of that. We don't see that in every industry. What qualifies you as a teacher or when do you know you can become one? It's funny. Yeah, it's really, my, my wife is a huge yoga fan and, <laughs> and, and her, best, her best friend is a great yoga teacher. And you just said that in order to be a yoga teacher, you have to do these 3,000 hours of yoga and what have you. And yet, I think if you, I wonder if that yoga teacher went back and back and back until eventually they found this 120-year-old mystical yogi sat on top of a mountain, uh, this guru sat on top of a mountain in India. I wonder where he did his training to become a <laughs> yoga guru. But this, goes, this goes right back to that thing that we talked about 
about, about accountability. I have to be able to account for this. So in order to do this, I have to do so many hours of training and then I become a teacher. But I, I taught from, I, I learned from somebody who didn't do this training. If you go back further, further enough, there'll be somebody who taught you who didn't have a qualification. They just had skill, experience, aptitude, and a desire to share. Does that make sense? So, uh, but again, we want to be able to quantify everything. So, I, 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 I'll let you into a little secret here. I was once doing some training for an FE college, and I started working with their hairdressing stu their hairdressing students. Then I started working with their hairdressing teachers. Then the whole department teachers, all the holistic therapy teachers. Then I started working with the curriculum heads, and then I started working with the the called access heads, the people that bring teachers into the college. And it wasn't until my fifth or six uh, expedition with this college that somebody said to me what where did you do your teacher training where did you get your qualifications from and I said I have no qualifications <laughs> and they looked at one another and then they looked at me and I knew exactly what was going to happen and I never heard from the college again you know Serious? <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Even though I'd been back several times and I'd taught virtually their entire faculty because I didn't have this paper that quantified what I do. That was it. I was, so, but, but, so going back to what, what you've just said there, I, I, here are two things that I believe uh, wholeheartedly. First of all, I believe that teaching is a skill and skills can be taught. So I can teach somebody how to teach. The second thing that I believe wholeheartedly is that everybody has got something that they can teach to someone else. Everybody has got something that they can teach to someone else. And to stand back and to say, I can't teach because I'm not an expert is a disservice to the people who might benefit from the knowledge that you have. Every one of us knows one or two things that somebody else doesn't know. And if we can pass on those one or two things to somebody else, help them live a better life, solve a problem, just get over a little obstacle in the road. If we can do that, then we should and we can. We can, we, we can train to teach more effectively in less time with a higher rate of success. We can train to do that. And I, people like me can help you do that. But everybody can teach and everybody has got something that they can teach to someone else. So that actually kind of eases in nicely to the next question because you were saying that everyone has a skill um, that they can teach. We're kind of moving past what quantifies you to be able to teach to now kind of how do you know how to charge your worth? Because nowadays we're seeing an explosion of online academies. You think of LinkedIn Learn and you've Udemy, you've, um, of course, I'm typically now going to go blank, but there's loads of them out there. But there's even loads of like, single person academies yeah people who have been in whatever their industry for a long time deciding to put up an academy of their own with their name as the brand exactly so everyone and anyone now seems to become a teacher even if you can put a few videos together on youtube you've essentially created a course so this is a bit of a two-part the first one is how do you know what to charge or how to charge your worth if you want to become a trainer and create these academies or courses? And secondly, as a student that wants to get into the hair and beauty industry, do you still have to rely on going to college or facilitated events or can you enroll in online courses too? Or I suppose which one to trust as well. How do you know which to trust? Oh yeah, trust would be huge, wouldn't it? Other than the reviews, but... 
So no pressure. That's a big question for you there now. We might go make a cup of tea while we wait. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's some amazing things. There's these things that, are, that came a few years ago called MOOCs, the massive open online courses, things like edX and Udemy and those kind of things, which are great. And they're all very kind of, but but it's all very two-way. I mean, things like edX and that will, they, they'll have like peer-to-peer coaching uh, where, you, where you'll submit things up to YouTube or you'll post things online and your peers coach you and what have you. But, uh, but you're very much left to your own devices. Again, it's a one-way street. It's from me to you. That's all it is. So it's a one-way data drive. Uh, but now, yeah, especially in my industry more than ever, I get that all the time. People contacting me and say, what is it now? Everybody's an educator. You know, everybody's an educator. And they've all got this little strap line underneath their website now, you know, educator, this kind of thing. <laughs> so what qualifies you to be an educator? Gosh, uh, I'm, I'm not a great believer in, in formalized and systemized qualifications. I'm not a great believer in that. I think if you need them in order to, to, to open a door and to take the next step, then it's a necessity. But I don't believe that a qualification makes you any more able or willing to be able to deliver a job, if that makes sense to you. I think Perfect if, sense, uh, yeah. I, I, always, I always say this, I, I always say, you know, an, a qualification does not give you the right to teach. Qualification gives you an authority to teach, but only you and your learners can give you the right to teach. That's all. Uh, all the qualification does is open a door for you or get you another job at this college that I was talking about earlier on. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, so here's the thing. Because there are so many of these educators about now, to a certain extent, the, the, first, uh, the first and most important quality, I think, for an educator is, is, is a benevolence, is a desire to want to be able to share. And eventually, you know, it, it's, it's the goal of every good teacher to be outstripped by their student. The, the ultimate aim of a teacher is to be bettered by their student. So by, by elevating you, you know, I, I, I myself lift up and what have you. So, so benevolence is the first thing. And in that respect, here's what I would recommend all educators to do. Serve first. Serve first. Do what you can do, even if it means doing it for free. Just go in and help people. Serve first. Let people see what you can do and how you can help them. There's no point going online and saying, hey, look at me, I won an award, I'll charge you a thousand pounds a day because people don't know what you can do and they don't know how you can help them. So serve first. And when you start to serve, then you'll start to create a need. Then people will start to ask. With my career, everything that I did right at the beginning, it was all for free. Sometimes I had to pay to do it because of the expenses that I had to outlay to go and do it. So assist people, help people, shadow people, do what you can do for, for, for free. Serve first. Even if it means within your own salon, within your own group, how many apprentices, uh, co-workers can you help? If someone asks you a question, offer that advice and help. Offer it freely. There's this, uh, there's this misconception, and it comes from scarcity, that if I teach you everything that I know, I'll be empty and you'll be full. And that's, that's a misconception that comes from scarcity. If I teach you everything that I know, then my tanks will be empty and, and the universe will just fill them back up again. If I don't empty those tanks out, whatever's in there will become stale and stagnant and poisonous. So I have to empty it all out and give it all to you. And that way I can fill up with more stuff. And rather than you sort of turning around and, and, and leaving me in the dirt, now you become a colleague. Now you become a, a, a cohort. Now you become an equal and we're working together for the betterment of a greater good. So 
I know it sounds a bit like like I'm on a soapbox and I'm I'm being holier than thou. But before, when I was a young educator, I used to think, how much can I charge for this? How much money can I make from this? Now I just think about what impact can I make with this information? How can I impact people with this information? How can I make my industry better with this information? And don't ask me how, uh, because I'm not intelligent enough to, to answer that. But somehow it seems to come back. It seems to come back. The more I give away, the more people come and ask me then to come work for them and to do more things with them. Uh, and what have you. Does, does that make sense? That absolutely makes perfect sense because there do tend to be those guys out there that try to hold back on giving you everything because they want to be seen as the master and they don't want the student to, what was it, the student become the master? Yeah, well, I'll, 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 I will give you a word of advice. Uh, my, my word of advice, uh, there's a great, there's a, there's a good teacher on the internet there, does some great TED Talks. His name's Simon Sinek, if you want to check him out. It comes up with some interesting stuff. And I really agree with him on something that he said. He said, be very suspicious of anybody who calls themselves an expert. And, and certainly don't take any teaching from anybody who calls themselves an expert, because if you are declaring yourself an expert, that means that you've got nothing else left to learn. And my friends, that does not make for a good teacher at all. You know, so, so when people come to you and say, are you an expert in education? I say, no, no, no. I'm a student of education. I'm studying education. That's what I'm doing. I'll tell you everything that I've figured out now, but I know it sounds like a cliche, but the more I find out about it, the more it confirms how little I know and how much more there is to find out. It's like the circle of competence, isn't it? Where you go in, you learn a little bit and you get very confident because by learning that little bit, you think you've learned a lot, but then you realize how little you actually know and then you become incredibly unconfident, yeah. Well, yeah, you get you get into what they call unconscious competence, which means That's you're doing it. it without thinking, you know, and people say to you, oh, I can do this without thinking. And you say, yes, I can see that you are doing it without thinking. And then you go back into, uh, yeah, unconscious incompetence, as it were. It's so, a yeah, cruel so... loop of learning. And I advise <laughs> anyone to Google the, was it the learning life cycle or the stages of learning? It's called, yeah, it's called the stages of learning, yeah, four stages of learning. So if you're looking for an educator... Look for someone who is seen to be taking education themselves. If you're looking for an educator, if you're looking for somebody to teach you, look for something who is the, who are they themselves a student. Because at least they will be able to put themselves in your position and they will know what you are going through as a learner. If they themselves are a learner, no one's at the end of the road, but you do want to try and find somebody who's a little bit further down the road than you are. Who, someone who can reach back and kind of show you where the obstacles are and some of the pitfalls are and guide you through. So look for people who are there themselves learners. If you want to qualify as a teacher yourself, as an educator, then let people know what you are doing to learn. What are you doing to make yourself a student? What, uh, and again, it's called earning the right, earn the right. Earn the right is about two things. It's about experience and intention. Here are my experiences. Here's what's helped me become a great learner. Here's what I've learned from my journey. And this is my intention for you today. So earn the right as an educator. What are your experiences and your intentions as it appertains to your learner? Does that kind of answer part of your question? That's brilliant. Yeah, no, that, that, that does answer it. Yeah. Uh, another aspect of training and teaching that I find really interesting is how as an educator or teacher or coach, you want your students or your learners to succeed ultimately if it comes from a place of like you want to share 
your knowledge and help other people. Obviously, the help part is because you want them to succeed and pass their that pain point of theirs, whatever that is. How do you manage the feeling when that doesn't happen? Like I've dabbled a bit in that with mentorship where I take that responsibility on my shoulders to have them succeed. But at the end of the day, it's more so on the learner's shoulders, that responsibility. They have to take ownership of their learning path, don't they? They do. And and you mentioned two really important words there. You talked about ownership and responsibility. Yeah. And and, and as, a, as an educator, well, that's certainly one of the first things that I try to do and I try to teach other educators to do. Set the context of your learning session. What is my responsibility in this partnership and what is your responsibility in this partnership? So it's important to get learners to understand that any result that they're getting now comes from the things that they do. And these things may be routine behaviours, they may be habits. These routine behaviours may be so deeply ingrained that they set up a belief system that my result is not only a consequence, but it's an inevitability. And therefore, uh, that's what happens because that's what always happens. In order to do that, I have to open myself up to take a risk. And the risk is that I'm going to fail, make a mistake, be judged, uh, be thought of as less. And once I take that risk and get that unexpected outcome, then I'm going to try and protect myself by coming up with all kinds of excuses and reasons why it's not my fault and it's somebody else's problem, not mine. And if that happens, I'll never make progress. So it's about getting the learner to understand, I can give you this information and I can ask you the questions. But ultimately, learning requires risk. It requires risk and self-examination. So take the risk, have a look at what happened as a result of that risk and re-examine it. What worked? What didn't work? What could I do more of? What could I do less of? What am I going to do next? Does that make sense? So I think it's, it's, it's allowing your learners the freedom to take responsibility for their own learning. Uh, I always use the analogy of, uh, of, of like, uh, you know, m- moving from one island to another. You, you, you've run out of food on this one island. You've passed the threshold of pain. You need to get to the next island where there's lots of lovely coconuts. But you've got to jump in the water and you've got to swim. And by jumping in the water, you're going to get wet. The waves are going to come over your head and it's going to feel like you're going to go underwater and you're going to feel like you can't breathe. And letting the learner know, look, while you're going underwater and you're feeling that you're not going to breathe and you're feeling that you can't see, please rest assured of one thing. I will not jump in and save you. I will not jump in and save you, but I will not let you drown. I'll all be, I'll be there. I'll coach you. I'll teach you how to swim. I'll tell you what to do next. I'll help you. I'll guide you. I'll encourage you. I'll give you strength, but you'll get to that island by yourself. But I will get you there, but you have to swim. I can't swim for you. Does that make sense? And I think it's, it's allowing learners to know that. And then when learners haven't made the progress that they want, it's, then it's about sitting down with them and saying, okay, so what part did I play in this outcome? And what part did you play in this outcome? So is this all a part of the learning style that you mentioned at the start? Not the four learning styles, the VARC, but accelerated learning. You mentioned it at the start, and I wanted to hold off before jumping into it, but I think now seems like the perfect time. What, is it, what, what does accelerated learning look like? 
Accelerated learning is about understanding that uh, people are coming with this point of pain. They're looking for results. And it's about showing them how they can achieve these results themselves, uh, how you can break down the barriers that they have to learning so that they can make progress themselves. So it's, uh, it's multisensory. There's lots of things going off, lots of state changes. It's about asking questions rather than giving data. It's about inciting a little bit of chaos in the learning as well. You know, nothing, nothing that was worthwhile learning was learned easily. You know, all good learning comes with a certain amount of chaos and frustration and anxiety. So it's about inciting that in a, in a controlled way and letting people know what's happening. So it, it's, we, we'll spend the first part of a session not talking about the data that we're going to share, but just setting the context. It's a little bit like you can't see on the podcast, but I'm holding up a coffee cup here and, and inside the coffee cup is, is, is coffee. The coffee is always the same, but the cup is constantly changing. The cup is the context, if you know what I mean. And this context, it has to be functional. I have to be able to hold it. I have to be able to get it to my mouth. It has to be able to keep the coffee warm. It has to fulfill all kinds of different needs. And what we tend to do a lot of now in education is we focus so heavily on the data. Accelerated learning is about focusing on the context in which this data is delivered, making it easy for people to learn, uh, but putting them under the a right amount of pressure so that they have breakthroughs. There's always there's always something between between um, desire and, and between knowledge or between um, between this pain and this solution. There's always some resistance. Anything that you don't have in your life now, whether whether it's monetary or whether it's psychologically or whether it's spiritual or emotionally, anything that you don't have, if you examine it, there'll be some resistance there. There'll be some kind of friction there that's making it difficult to get there. So accelerated learning is just about cutting down this resistance, breaking down barriers to learning, cutting down this resistance so you can get to where you want to be quicker. Well, listen, Chris, I don't think we could end it on a better note than this. And I think it's a perfect segue to ask you, what are some of the next, I don't know, stops maybe? I know you've been traveling recently, courses or webinars that you have coming up for people to join you on those uh, the next one that I have is a it's a three day event that's over in Phoenix in Arizona. I'm going out there uh, at the end of next week, and um, that's for people uh, uh, the, the, from all over the world, primarily North American, but we do have some Canadians, some Australians, some South Americans coming as well uh, to that. That's a three day residential uh, for people that are already working as educators or facilitators or presenters in some way, and we're just going to kind of deep dive a little bit on these accelerated learning techniques. Um, I have. Have, uh, I have a one-day class actually coming up for some friends of mine. I think that's on the 20th of April. That's a kind of a train-the-trainer situation. Uh, that's that's just that's just one day, uh, but it, it's a nice little taster. Uh, we we can afford to cover a, a few subjects without necessarily deep diving on those subjects. Um, the weekend, the week after that, I have a two-day program in London. Uh, that's on behalf of the L'Oreal Group, and that's a two-day uh, educator training program where we can deep dive a little bit more. Um, yeah, and that's that's it for the next for the next uh, two or three weeks. Yeah, it's coming up. Is there anywhere online that our listeners can go to to register for, or are they already booked out? No, no, you can go and um, uh, I, I think I think Chris Camp, if you're listening, uh, if you want to make the trip over to Arizona, Chris Camp, you can get to by going to bit.ly slash Chris Camp. Uh, 
on the 20th of April, I think it is actually, that's the one in Northampton, you can go to We Are Perfectionists, all one word, weareperfectionists.co.uk. And then the two-day program that's in London, you can go to uk.lorealaccess.com. And if you search for Redken Train the Trainer, you should be able to find some information there. And uh, I'd love to see you, yeah. And look, if there's anything else, um, uh, you, can, you can get me on all social media channels at Chris Moody Hair, all one word, Chris Moody Hair. And if there's anything that you need about this, if you've got questions about this podcast or if there's anything that I've said that, that sparks an interest and you want to talk to me about it, drop me a message. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to engage and, and talk to anybody. If you've got any issues that you think I can help you with, I'll help as much as I can uh, digitally. Uh, if you want to see me face to face, we can try and fix that up as well. <laughs> and also, here's the other thing. If there's anything controversial that I've said that you don't agree with, that has really ruffled your feathers, then talk to me about that as well. Because uh, heated debate and discussion is a fantastic tool for learning. So, uh, yeah, throw me anything out. I'm, I'm open. I'd like to see that one online too. Tag Forest FM. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, listen, Chris, this has been absolutely fantastic. Appreciate your time uh, spent with us today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Take care. Bye-bye. When you're running a salon or a spa, a hunch isn't good enough. That's why Forest Salon Software provides you with a comprehensive reporting suite and analytics, giving you the freedom and flexibility to make the decisions that matter. Manage, market and grow your business with Forest Salon Software, a premium cloud-based salon software system for three-plus employees. Visit forest.com for more details. So that was Chris Moody on the psychology and I suppose unearthing some theories behind how we learn, but also how we teach other people, especially when we're dealing with adult education, which is the majority of employees in this industry at the moment. They've transitioned from school, possibly even college. And now as you're in the workplace, you're essentially in adult education. And that's where Chris excelled. And it was really interesting to listen to some of those points there today. So next up, we have the Inside Forest segment. And we're going to kick it off with the client webinars. Now, we only have one client webinar coming up soon. It's the Forest Education Tackle Those Top Challenges. So I said it before and I'll say it again. You're always going to come across challenges when you're moving from one product to another. It's never that seamless, especially when you have your own best practice procedures and methods. So there is always a little bit of learning and adaption required when you're moving from one system to another. And for Forest, we actually have a webinar for our clients who are going through that transition period where things might feel like a bit of a challenge. Things we're going to cover in this webinar are the top Forest challenges you may or may not experience. We're going to go through some best troubleshooting methods and we're going to help you become knowledge independent when using Forest. So that webinar takes place on March 9th, 2020 at 4.30pm GMT, that's Irish time, 11.30am Eastern time or 8.30am Pacific time. An email has already gone out to clients where they can register for that. Or if you don't see the email, just contact us at training at and ask to be signed up to the webinars. 
Next on the segment, speaking of adult education, uh, we have a free upcoming webinar as well for Forest clients and non-clients hosted by Caroline McAneary, the Managing Director of the HR Suite. This is taking place on Monday, March 23rd at 10 a.m. GMT, UK, Ireland. She'll be covering the top 10 HR tips for salon owners. The registration is free. The link to sign up can be found in today's show notes. Also in the UK, we'll be exhibiting at Pro Beauty London on March 29th and 30th. So if you've been dying to have a chat with us, this is a perfect opportunity to uh, come see the team. We'll be on stand 31 during that weekend. And looking even further ahead, uh, we're talking Salon Owners Summit. The seventh edition of the flagship event is once again taking place in Dublin at the Convention Centre. This time it's on January 10th and 11th. The 10th being our pre-summit Inside Forest Tech event, which is always very popular. Strongly recommend you join us there, uh, you know, especially if you want to see Killian and I do a live podcast as well. And then the 11th is the actual day of the Salon Owners Summit conference itself. The tickets are on sale already. This edition is actually open to clients and non-clients for the very first time. So if the Salon Owners Summit has been on your radar for the past years, this is now your chance. And we've got a really cool edition coming up. We've got super early bird tickets on sale uh, as of right now. So the link for a callback is also once again in the notes for this episode. On that note, I just want to reiterate, if you have any questions or want to get into a conversation about whatever we talked about today, you can reach out to Chris Moody at Chris Moody Hair, all in one word, uh, or also use the hashtag ForestFM on social media, tag us as well um, on at Forest Salon Software or your regional account. And so that's all we got for this week, really. Uh, as always, if you want to share your thoughts on this episode or have any suggestions around the show in general, you can send us an email at ForestFM at Forest.com or leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It uh, takes a minute of your time, really, but it makes a world of difference on how we can better tailor the content and provide more value to you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next Monday. All the best. This episode was edited and mixed by Audio Z. Great music makes great moments. Montreal's cutting-edge post-production studio for creative minds looking to have their vision professionally produced and mixed. Forest FM, the Salon Owners podcast, is brought to you by Forest Salon Software. We help salon owners get their clients back in more often, spending more, and generating referrals. Let's grow.